All right, kids, come on up. Noah, I think it's going to read. We, we, we take the uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones Jesus Storybook Bible on fifth Sundays uh, to help some of our younger uh, family members follow along. So that's what we're going to be reading from, and then I'll give it to Cliff, and he can take over. Jesus' friends were afraid, so they were hiding in an upstairs room with the door bolted shut. But that didn't stop Jesus. He just walked straight through the wall. It's a ghost, Thomas screamed and hid under the table. But it wasn't a ghost. I'm hungry, Jesus said. What's for lunch? Peter gave him a fish. They all hung back and watched him eat it. This can't be, they were telling themselves. It's, n- it's impossible. It's not happening. But it was right in front of them. Delish. <coughs> Delicious, Jesus said. Wipe. Jesus wiped his mouth with the back of his hand and grinned. Can a ghost do that? He winked, and then they all laughed. He, I'm really here, Jesus said, and he really was. Peter's heart leaped with joy, and he fell into Jesus' arm. Jesus' arms, hugging and kissing him. The others followed. They felt their hearts would burst from their ha- from the happiness. The friends ate together and chatted happily. And every now and then, they just gazed at Jesus. They'd have to touch him to be sure they weren't dreaming. Jesus had a real body, but this body was better. It had come through death and wouldn't get sick or be killed. Again, this body would live forever. Jesus had come back with a brand new body. Not only were the sad things coming untrue, the friends realized they were becoming new again. Was God going to make everything new? Jesus said, I am the Savior and the Rescuer of the world. And they knew because he couldn't stay dead, because Jesus had come alive again, that somehow everything would be all right. I think I messed up the order here, so Shelby may be seeing this for the pop quiz here. You want to read this for us? A few days later, as they walked together, Jesus told his friends, it's time for me to go home to my father. They all looked worried. And then... They remembered what Jesus had told them, told them before he died. There's a place for you. I'll get ready. I'll get it ready. Jesus had said, you know the way. Thomas had panicked. I don't know the way to get there. Yes, you do, Jesus said. I am the way and the truth and the life of the highest when, when at last they reached the top of the highest hill near Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus turned to them and said, Go everywhere and tell everyone the happy news. Tell them I love them so much. I died for them. It, it's the truth that overcomes the terrible lie. God loves his children. Yes, he really does. Suddenly the whole sky filled was filled with dazzling light. Now everyone can come home to God, Jesus said. Death is not the end of you. You can live forever with your Father in heaven because I have rescued the whole world. And something amazing happened. Jesus rose up into the bright air higher and higher. They shaded their eyes and watched him go until a cloud hid Jesus so they could not see him anymore. They stood up looking into the sky that, like that for a long time. Suddenly, two shining men appeared. What are you doing, they asked. Jesus has gone up to heaven, but one day he will come back in the same way you saw him leave. From heaven, 
and from the sky. Jesus' friends went back to Jerusalem with a strange gladness in their hearts, and something Jesus with Jesus that stuck in their minds. Even though you won't be able to see me anymore, I will never leave you. No, not ever. I will be with you. Yes, always and forever. How can Jesus be with us and leave us at the same time, they wondered. They didn't understand, no, but they soon would. Thank you, children. Mr. Cliff? Okay. Well, thank you, Pastor Tommy. I, um... That storybook covers a lot of the scripture that we're going to be discussing today, and I want to... Who remembers in the end of July when the ACs broke inside the kids' room and in the sanctuary, and we had to meet out here? It was pretty hot that day. But uh, something that Pastor Tommy had preached on uh, that day was the Gospel of Matthew. And I just wanted to rehash a few things that he had mentioned that day that he started off, that Jesus started off this parable. It was a parable about the rich king who, his, his son was getting married, and of course he wanted to have a big royal wedding. And uh, it was, Jesus started off that parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this, which is how he starts off most of his parables. Whenever he teaches about heaven, Jesus will always say, the kingdom of heaven is like such and such. And Jesus used this opportunity to talk about a wedding and, and Pastor Tommy had pointed out that that was supposed to be our first exposure to the gospel, is that it was a joyful occasion, that it was, it was a celebration. Weddings can be emotional. They can be, uh, they're, they're supposed to be emotional and joyous, and they bring family together. And he had also talked about that the is, uh, weddings in the Middle East, they lasted sometimes, well, they definitely lasted at least a week, maybe two weeks if it was a royal wedding, if you had enough money to make that party go on for two weeks anyways. And uh, Pastor Tommy also spoke about how the first place Jesus did his miracle was where? At, at a wedding, okay? So I'm piggybacking off of that, okay? We're, I'm, I'm just going to take that and run with it. And um, we look at weddings through the biblical perspective, and I, I believe that Jesus in the Old Testament also teaches weddings as a a symbolic union of how God relates to his people. Always the language of weddings and marriage and family, and I'm going to go through a little bit of scripture and show you that. And I'd also like to pause for a moment. Um, I understand that not everybody has had a great experience with marriage. Um, you know, I'm happily married. I watched a marriage modeled by my mom and my dad for over 40 years till Jesus took my mom home. So I, I have great models of a marriage, but I've also seen in my family the wreckage left behind after a horrible divorce uh, where um, the spouses were at each other, turning the children against each other, and even one of those spouses today has not even seen the grandkids of one of the children in 20 years. So, and it affects my immediate family today, so I understand that, that that can be the wreckage sometimes behind a marriage after a divorce and all those things. But it reminds me of when I first started going to church, the church that I was attending, my, me and my mom were going together and the pastor that day was talking about God's love for us and how it's like a father, that, the, that God relates to us 
as a father and he loves us like children and this woman stormed out of the sanctuary and my mom went to go chase after her to see what was going on and she was out there bawling her eyes out and she said you know my father was horrible to me it's so hard for me to understand a loving father I, I, it's really hard I, I can't I can't put my arms around it so she needed to suspend that and I need you if you have those types of experiences I need you to, to suspend that so we can look at it from a biblical perspective the way God had intended it okay can we do that okay so on your bulletin is John chapter 14 the scripture we'll be looking at uh, if you have your Bibles your electronic device please uh, go ahead and note that we're gonna be at John chapter 14 and before we delve deep into the scripture I want to paint a backdrop, okay? So if you go to a play, right, you can kind of get the gist of the play just by the actors acting it out. But there's always a fuller representation of the play if there's a nice backdrop. Maybe you've gone shopping for an engagement ring and you're looking for that nice diamond ring, right? It's always behind a black backdrop, so when you look in there, you see it all sparkle and stuff so they can sell it to you real easy. So that's what I want to, I want to paint a backdrop, okay? And we're going to get into some historical information. We're going to get into the Bible, and we're going to look at the cultural context of a marriage. And I want, to, I want to paint this backdrop for you before we go to the Scripture so that you can read it in this cultural context. So we're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew today. Does that sound exciting? Maybe a little bit? The, the, the Nugents asked me if I was ready. I said, we're going to have a, um, a gospel filibuster today. So, all right. so as long as it takes to get my point across, that's how long we're going to be here. Okay, marriage in Israel was centered around the family. It was centered around what is called the father's house, and in Hebrew, that's called the Beit Ab. So let's say it, Beit Ab. Beit Ab. So that's spelled B-E-T and then A-B. So Beit Ab, father's house. So E-L, L, what does that mean in Hebrew? Come on, guys. The, the boys, the kids from uh, when we did the names of God, what does L mean? E-L. All right. <laughs> See, they're learning something back there in children's church, all right? So, so we know that Bayat means house. So what is, if you read the scriptures and it says Bethel, what does Bethel mean? House of God. Everyone knows Israel or Hebrew now. So you guys are ready to teach in the kids. All right. So I went to Israel in 2016. It was with this school called Jerusalem University College. It was really awesome. What they did was they take you and they submerge you in first century Israel to uh, teach about the culture that Jesus come up, came up in and you learn about you know, Herod and just all the things that were going on. So much awesome archeological uh, finds that are there right now. And people, you know, when I came back, they're asking me, well, what'd you do? You went to the Sea of Galilee and you, I mean, all those things were great. You went to the Dead Sea and, and I, I, without exception, I always share about the Beit Ab because that was just so awesome to me archaeologically and just very impactful to me devotionally. And um, we were in the ruins of Chorazin, Chorazin, however you say it. Uh, there was an unearthed Beit Ab there, a father's house. The professor leading the group, he, he showed it to us. He pointed out some characteristics of it, talked about how sometimes there'd be two stories. Uh, the second story, that, that's where people would entertain their guests and that's where they would sleep. And downstairs was like food processing. They would have a cistern to hold water. There would actually be like a little itty bitty stable for animals that they would milk and everything. So it kind of opens up a little bit more uh, interpretation to when Mary and Joseph went to someone's house and they stayed in the stable. It was actually 
really realistically in the house, but they just didn't have any more room in the entertaining part upstairs. We talked about some parables that we might have uh, seen in the Bayat Av, the Father's house. One of the parables that I remembered was, again, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who lost her coin, right? And she cleans out her house. This is the story that Jesus told. Cleans out her house. He's like, I can't find my coin. She was probably poor. And, and she finally found it after she pulled everything out of her house, swept it, and then calls all of her friends and says, rejoice with me, I found my money. And so when he, we see, you actually see what the house looked like. He, the professor had pointed out that the coin that she was looking for really looked like the stones on the floor, so it blended in. You had these big crevices, so it's just re- it was just really cool to see that and just have it come alive and just understand it in another way. That father's house was the building block of not only Israeli society, but even the Middle East. Within these homes would be several generations living in this small community, and that was the building block of all of ancient Israel. So I'd like you to think of it like this. Think all of you just, you're the firstborn son, whether you're male or female, you're the firstborn son, okay? Now let's talk about your grandpa. Let's just say your grandpa came back from exile from Babylon, okay, and they resettled Israel. That's, that's your great-grandpa, whatever. So great-grandpa, he was a carpenter, took a wife, built a house, right, had sons and daughters. That firstborn would be, what, your grandpa. He got married, He built an addition onto the house, brought home his wife, had kids, right? The firstborn would have been your father, okay? Your father brought home a wife, built an addition, had you, now you're the firstborn, and now you're next to inherit the father's house. So you're going to go, you're going to find a wife, bring her home, build an addition onto the house. That's the father's house. That's how that works. So you can think about three generations, how many people could potentially be living in that house. Your great-grandfather could be dead, but your great-grandma could still be alive. Um, Some of your great-uncles and uncles may have chosen to stay there at the father's house. So you have all these people running around, all these kids running around, and you're in charge of them. So that's the responsibility that would be behind the top patriarch of the father's house. So what happened if grandpa had multiple kids? How did that work? So you had the option. The firstborn always took over the father's house, and the other kids had the option. Of course, the the daughters would be married off, hopefully to a good, wealthy family. So Jewish mama would be happy. It's like, I want my daughter provided for because she would get an inheritance through her husband. So the kids had the opportunity at that point to say, okay, well, if I'm going to stay at the father's house, I have to submit to the oldest brother. That's how that worked. Or he can go start his own father's house, start building somewhere else. That was the option. That was, that's what you uh, were able to do. Uh, this might, reading about some biblical examples, if you've uh, been reading your scriptures, uh, an easy one is the prodigal son. We can see a little bit, a bit about how the, the father's house worked in that because we know that the younger son in the story, when Jesus told this parable, the younger son came to the father and said, I want my inheritance. And I remember the professor out there at Israel, he was pretty much saying, it was really insulting to the dad. It was pretty much saying, okay, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what's due mine. The dad gave it to him. He went off and spent it, blew it, and then realized his father's love and was able to come back. And of course, there's a, there's a lot of uh, deeper meaning into this parable, but you can see the workings of the father's house because the, the oldest son was upset that the father had thrown this big party, had killed the fatted calf, and uh, one thing that the father says 
to the oldest son is like, well, all that I have is yours. We need to be happy for your son because he was dead. Now he's alive. He is lost. Now he's found. Pretty much what he's saying, all this is yours. Whenever I die, you can kill as many fatted calves as you want and throw all the parties you want. What are you crying about? You know, so he, he had a problem with his heart. And, you know, of course, the father wanted to deal with that. So you can see the dynamics of the father's house and how that would work. And you can see it even in that parable. So we've talked about the building block of Israeli society, the father's house. Now we're going to talk about the marriage. Of course, without marriage and without relationship, there's no father's house. So let's just talk about something that may be most similar, even from greeting cards at Christmas time. You know, we'll learn about Joseph and Mary. You know, in the scriptures, the Bible says that Mary was betrothed to Jesus. Um, <laughs> Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And... Um, the betrothal was like an engagement, only stronger. And really, to break it was almost like a divorce. You had to go through a legal process to break that engagement. And as we know the story, um, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit, right? And Joseph was a good guy, you know, and he was a good Jewish boy. And good Jewish boys didn't consummate their marriage before they were married. And um, found her with child. Wanted to put her away privately because... He was such a good guy. He was a just guy because he knows that if he would have made a big deal out of it, she actually probably would have been stoned to death. Um, but he wanted to do it privately. And of course, the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, okay, she's telling the truth. You need to take her as your wife and raise that son and you're going to call him Jesus. So what happened during the betrothal? The boys got to work, okay? The, the bridegroom would start building that addition onto the father's house and the bride would start building her hope chest, okay? She would finish learning her skills on how to sew, how to raise a family, uh, and all the skills that she would need to, do, to know, you know, filling up the cistern and making pita bread and matzo balls and all those things, you know? So that's what they would spend that year doing because it would take about a year to do that, uh, to, to build the addition onto the house and everything. So the betrothal lasted about a year. And when it was time for the marriage, Pastor Tommy, he talked about this too. I don't know if you remember, but the bridegroom would leave his house with a procession of all of his friends. They would, if they could afford it, they would have wedding garments. Of course, the royal wedding would have the best wedding garments. That would Sometimes they would provide that for you. And they would go to the house of the bride. The bride's parents would release the bride to the bridegroom. And then they would go back to the addition that he built onto the room, consummate the marriage, and everyone else would party and hang out for a week. You know, it'd be a, it'd be a huge family reunion, okay? So, now that we have that in context, now that we have that in your mind, let's read chapter 14 and see if you can connect the dots and see if there's a little bit of a deeper meaning going on here than what's read on the surface. Are you ready? Okay, John chapter 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Isn't that awesome? I remember just sitting there in this resurrected Father's house that had been found underground and the professor just reading that and I was just like, I was just 
really impacted. And I had read this verse, you know, many times. And just, if you don't understand the historical context, that's, that's fine, because you get the idea that Jesus is coming back for you, okay? That he loves you, that he's prepare, preparing a place for you. But what I didn't understand was that he was actually speaking from the context of how things worked in Israel, and all the disciples, they would have heard it this way. They would have thought it was kind of weird, but they would have like, wow, he really loves me. Um, I hope you don't think this is like sacrilegious or anything, but when I first got married, I was in the army, okay, and Bree was still here. She had to finish up her school, and we tried to transfer her school up there to Georgia, and it wasn't going to work because she would lose credits, and she would have to take extra classes, and it was just going to be a big mess. So she just had to stay here, and she lived with my parents. And uh, I was able, since I was legally married, I was able to move out of the barracks and get on-post housing. And, you know, of course, we'd call, she's like, oh, I can't wait to come be with you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, honey, I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going to come and receive you to myself. (laughs) And, you know, at the time, I, when I would say that, I didn't really know that that's the context of the verse. And then when I learned that, I was like, wow, that made that so much more meaningful. But um, so where are we at now with this? It, it, as we look at that idea of, or well, the, the cultural context of marriage, how the, bri- or how the bridegroom chased after the bride, found her, where are we at now? Christ is our bridegroom. He is our husband who has come to chase after us and seek us out. He has come and found his bride. He has given us an engagement ring. We'll talk a little bit about that. One thing I don't want to get ahead of myself, he's removed the veil from our face. When the bridegroom would go to pick up his wife, she would have this long veil over her face. And that's probably where we get the tradition today. And at some point during the ceremony, okay, get this, ready? The wedding party would take the veil off of her face, put it on the shoulder of the bridegroom, and they would say, um, May the government be upon his shoulder. Think about that for a minute. So, the, the veil was removed, marriage consummated. Why such intimate language here? Why, why, why does Jesus talk in such intimate language? I mean, I think that's a good question. Backing up into, verse, into chapter 13 just a little bit, I'm just going to read it. You don't have to turn there. Jesus starts out by saying in 14, let not your hearts be troubled. So if we back up a little bit, we understand that the chapters and verses that were put in by man. So you have to read ahead a little bit to get a little bit more understanding. Jesus said in 13, 33 through uh, 38, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I said to the Jews. So now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said to him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterward. So this, is, this was all taking place right before Jesus said what he said. So he's, now Jesus is like, don't let your heart be troubled. Because their husband was leaving. All the disciples are like, where are you going? Don't leave. Jesus had already said three times that he's going to be crucified and rise again the third day, so they're still, like, freaking out. I found it interesting that when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, I thought about this, it's almost like a command. He tells us, it gives me the idea that we kind of, we really have some control over what troubles us. If Jesus told us not to let our hearts be troubled, 
I think that we have the control within ourselves not to let our hearts be troubled. But he, he backs that up with a promise. Before He tells us, don't let your hearts be troubled because of this. I am preparing a place for you. And he says, believe in God, believe also in me. He expects us to believe in him. He expects us to trust him. There's another place, if you keep reading in chapter 14, you're going to find that Jesus said, if you don't believe me just because I, of what I speak, believe me at least for the works that I do. We have no excuse not to believe him. He's trustworthy. We can trust him. We can believe him. And uh, it's almost, I don't want to say comical, but I, I think that there's a little bit of humor to be found when uh, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? You know, I mean, I kind of do that to my kids. It's like, well, if I wasn't going to do this, would I have told you I was going to do it and slap them upside the head? Don't hate me. All right. But I'm, of course, Jesus wasn't doing that. I, I don't want to paint Jesus in that way. Um, so in our marriage relationship, where are we at with our Lord? He has come to seek us out. He's asked us if we're going to marry him. He's given us the engagement ring. What is the engagement ring? Does anybody know? Does anybody want to raise their hand? We have children's church. Anybody want to raise their hand and tell me what the engagement ring is? What is it? Oh, it's the Holy Spirit. Chapter and verse. What is it? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 is a great one to look at. Paul, pulling from the same idea of marriage, same idea from the Father's house, in him, who, Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, you heard the word, the gospel is your salvation, you believed in him, and then you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. So guarantee in the Greek actually means an engagement ring. That's what he's given us. If you believe, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit lives within you, and you should know that he is in there. There should be something different going on inside your heart. There should be something saying, well, I shouldn't do this anymore or something whenever you're in worship, just like today, you know, tear comes to your eye. Oh, Jesus, I love you because that's the Holy Spirit living within you and that's the guarantee to not let your heart be troubled. Believe God, believe also in me. He's coming back for you. So, we have our engagement ring. The Lord has come to take us. He's removed the veil so that we can see Christ. We can see him. He's led us on a procession back to the Father's house. Except this marriage has been consummated in his own blood. So we have all these precious promises. There's one element of the wedding that we have yet to experience yet. And that is the wedding banquet. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty pearl and thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christian, I believe what this says to you is to not let your heart be troubled. 
We have all kinds of things that trouble us. Last weekend, I took my family, we went on a little mini vacation to Clearwater and we were on this boat and we went deep sea fishing and all the kids were like going all over the place and we were talking about this scripture and discussing it. And I was like, well, honey, this is kind of like, uh, I think maybe this is what Jesus was talking about. And we said, don't let your heart be troubled because of the way the seas are, if it's kind of, the waves are kind of big, knocking the boat around, it's hard to stand up. And then we went to Sunny's afterward, and I'm sitting in the Sunny's, and I told Bria, I was like, I, feel still like I'm, I still feel like I'm on the boat because I'm going like this. You know, sometimes things in life have that effect on us to where they rock you, and you're just kind of like, you're dizzy for a couple years, you know? I've been there, done that. But through the time, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. We have control over that, and especially when we have the Holy Spirit living within us, how much more control do we have over that? So Christian, that's what he says to us. Seeker. If you haven't made that commitment to the Lord, he extends your hand to, his hand to you. You haven't done anything that um, makes him desire you. He just desires you because you're made in God's image. God does have a plan and a purpose for your life. He does extend his hand out to you. He wants to take you and make you his own. He wants to give you that engagement ring. And he wants you to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what he wants for you. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm going to close this out in prayer. And Pastor Tommy, did you like to come up? Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that your word tells us that these words are true and just, and there's no excuse not to believe them. Jesus, we know that you are trustworthy. We know that when you tell us something, you're going to do it. You're building a place for us. You're going to receive us to yourself. Holy Spirit, move on our hearts. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Father, I pray for those who are seeking today, Lord, that you would just overcome them with your love, that you would grab hold of their heart and show them that those fears that they have, they're not warranted. Help them not to let their hearts be troubled. And we thank you, Father. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.